MotoGP 2020 just gets weirder and weirder. Juan Mir is the title favourite and leads the way by 14 points, but the Suzuki rider still hasn't led a lap, never mind won a Grand Prix this season. Yamaha riders are second, third and fourth in the standings, but whereas Fabio Quattararo and Maverick Vinales have made the headlines for their inconsistencies this year, Franco Morbidelli brought himself into title contention with a perfect race on Sunday. Andre Davizioso's title challenge has been circling the drain for what seems like an eternity, but somehow the Italian's still in contention for the MotoGP title. Alex Rins has had pretty much a perfect couple of weekends in Aragon with 45 points, but he's still 32 points adrift of his teammate. There's three races left in MotoGP 2020, and... I honestly can't call anything. The good thing for us is we've got David Emmett and Neil Morrison here who should be the experts on MotoGP that should be able to bring us up to date on what happened at the Terrawell Grand Prix. So, David, let's start with you. Your quick hit thoughts on what we saw last weekend. Uh, well, we saw uh, an absolutely perfect Franco Morbidelli who j just rode an absolutely outstanding race and also worked all the way through the weekend towards the race in contrast to some of the uh, some of the others uh, we saw Takanakagami who looked like he was going to win everything he was so fast throughout practice uh, but uh, didn't get past turn 5 and we saw uh, Juan Mir uh, not win again and yet uh, extend his lead in the championship yeah, we've had eight different winners through the season. And Neil, the only repeat winners we've had have been the Petronas Yamaha boys. But it actually looked at this weekend that, like David said, we could have actually seen Honda at the front again. Takanakagami crashing out of the race lead on the opening lap. Alex Marquez looked fast as well. What gives with the Honda riders? Yeah, there's been a bit of a Honda resurgence in uh, recent weeks, starting with uh, Alex Marquez's podium at Le Mans. Uh, Takanakagami looked as though he was about to throw himself back into championship contention, but obviously that uh, went awry just four corners into the race. Um, Honda have certainly made big strides, I think, with their with their bike. I think their bike, uh, their riders have just become a bit more confident and comfortable as well. And uh, although last weekend ended in bitter disappointment, I wouldn't be surprised if either Marquez or Nakagami won a race before the end of the year. And David, we're going to jump straight into Honda as our first topic of today's show. Obviously, we've heard all the way through the last couple of weeks that Honda's made a massive step. They've got a new Olin shock on the bike, and this seems to have been one of the big turning points for them. But what's actually different with that shock? Uh, the, the shock uh, uses a different way, uh, a different form of damping. Um, and uh, almost everyone is using it now. So Franco Morbidelli used it to win, for example. Uh, the Suzuki has been using it almost since the start of the season. The, the Yamahas have been testing it on and off uh, since Mizano. The Ducatis have been using it. So it's sort of gradually infiltrating its way into the championship. The thing about adopting a new shock is it takes a while to set it up. And so teams are a bit wary of using it in the middle of the season because they want some time to you know they just want some sort of quiet time to get through it but because there's been no testing they haven't had that um, no I mean it, it's not a surprise that uh, Franco Morbidelli uh, used it for example Ramon Forcada is a uh, is a suspension specialist and so he has sort of a fast track into using it. Um, the Hondas have been using it, I think, for about the past two or three races. Um, and it has helped them uh, a lot. It makes the rear of the bike a little bit 
calmer. Uh, the, it damps a little bit better. It makes it a little bit less uh, uh, less aggressive. But that hasn't been the real difference for the Honda. For the Honda, it's just a cumulative effect of lots of small changes. Um, both Nakagami, Alex Marquez, uh, they both said, uh, and Cal Crutchlow is the same. It's, you know, look, we've just been chipping away at it, refining the setup, working on uh, on things. Alex Marquez has figured out how to uh, how to ride the, the MotoGP bike, for example. Uh, and of course, Aragon really, really suits their bike. Um, you know, Mark Marquez is just astounding around there. Mark Marquez isn't there, um, but he's been whispering into his brother's ear um, about how to go fast around there. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's not one thing. This shock hasn't suddenly turned the Honda into winners. This shock has solved, you know, it, it's made the bike a little bit better, uh, but all of the work they've done throughout the season is starting to come together uh, and turn the bike in really competitive. This is what Honda do, you know, just about every season, really. They start off difficult and then by the end, they're unbeatable. Dave, obviously you've been working in pit lane over the last few years for Eurosport over in in uh, Holland and one of the key roles for you is always that you have to make sure that you're up to date on everything that's happening on the bikes. Obviously whenever people like you and the same for Michael Laverty at BT Sport, the same for Spanish TV, the same for pretty much everyone, when they don't have pit lane reporters, why is it that we don't really get to hear all the nitty gritty? Like what's your job actually during a race weekend? Yeah, because I mean, normally what's happened is, I mean, like Simon Crayfire has been doing an absolutely fantastic job for, for, uh, for Dorna, I have to say. Um, uh, but at the moment, he's more or less the only really good pit, pit lane reporter. I think Anthony, Antonio Bosselli from, from Sky is there as well. He's pretty good. Um, but there's Crayfire. When Michael Averty's there, he's absolutely fantastic. Michael Averty, obviously, as an ex-racer, gets to see lots of things and can talk about it. Um, uh, I can spot a few things. And normally what we, do is you know if if one of us spots something we'll sort of like say you know go over take a look at the yamaha i think there's something about the, the uh, different about the rear uh go and take a look at the aprilia looks like they've got a new uh, i don't know a new shock new exhaust whatever so there'll be lots of stuff being swapped around and the trouble is now it's all all of this information is basically coming from simon crayfart as he's more or less the only person there he spots something and all of us sitting at home sort of all uh, cling on to this one piece of information which he spotted, uh, like uh, like drowning men to uh, to a piece of flotsam, and um, just sort of chew it over and over and over again, trying to figure out how it makes the uh, how it makes the bikes better. So I think one of the reasons we've heard a lot about the uh, uh, about the shock in pit lane is because there aren't pit lane reporters, there aren't journalists. Matt Oxley is also very good at this. Um, he'll be wandering up and down looking at things, and Neil Spaulding might be there having a look at things. You know, there'll be lots of other people looking at things, writing about things which they have seen. But there's just basically so few eyes in pit lane now that we're missing it or we're missing all these tiny little small changes. And uh, Neil, obviously, you're at the races at the moment. And uh, obviously, you can be a, a big resource for everything that's happening within the MotoGP paddock. But I want to ask you what you've seen change within the likes of Takanakagami and also Alex Marquez. They've been trusted with an awful lot more responsibility by Honda this year. And they really do seem like they've been able to kick on. They have, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think with Marquez first, it's just been a case of getting used to the MotoGP bike. I think um, he said the big step forward for him came at uh, the Misano test, which came between the two races at Misano. Um, and that was basically the the first 
time that he was able to test a whole lot of new things, have time to do it in a detailed manner. And then he said there was a part at the end of the day when he just said, like, look, let me go out, ride this bike as I want. And I'm going to try and put a few riding style uh, changes into effect. Um, and since then, I mean, his, his form has been really, really strong. Um, for Nakagami, I mean, his, his form has pretty much been there since Andalusia. I think he had a pretty dodgy opening race of the year. Um, finished 10th in the Spanish Grand Prix. Um, but what we've seen from Nakagami is just a, a massive step forward from back-to-back -back weekends. And I think he's like one of the guys that's really benefited from Marquez, uh, Mark Marquez getting injured. Um, I think a lot more focus uh, was put on him because at the start of the year, Cal Crutzler was also um, badly injured in some ways still is. And, um, you know, he's been getting a lot more attention from the likes of HRC technical director Takeo Yukiyama. Um, he has been adapting his riding style not to be like Mark Marquez, but to be a little more in line with Marquez and uh, using some of those settings that he used in 2019. And it's also Nakagami's third year in MotoGP. And last year, we have to remember that the second half of the year was clouded by the fact that he was riding with a pretty serious shoulder injury um, that he got when he crashed or when he was taken out of the Dutch Grand Prix by Valentino Rossi. Um, and prior to that race, he was actually, I think he finished fifth in Mugello. He was actually showing some pretty good form uh, last year on a year-old Honda. Um, so I think this is just something that has been building and Nakagami has been super consistent until this weekend, of course. And uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a bit more about that now. Yeah, obviously, this was his first real opportunity to try and win a MotoGP race. He had set the pace all the way through the practice sessions. He took pole position. He looked like he was ready to really step up. But unfortunately for Taka, this was another case and another time where that bit of pressure just seemed to bring out the worst in him. And after the race, he actually admitted as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was heartbreaking in some ways watching Nakagami, uh, his reaction after the race. He went back to the, the pit lane. He still had his helmet on when he was in the LCR garage and he just had his head in his hands. Um, his uh, debrief was initially cancelled um, because it was supposed to be just after the race. He was clearly in a pretty emotional way. Um, and then it was rearranged for, I think, two, two and a half hours after the race. And when he did speak, he was just very, very upfront and honest and just said that uh, since he got pole position on the Saturday, um, that uh, yeah, he was, he started feeling the most intense kind of pressure. Um, he's not used to um, being the favorite ahead of a race. Um, I mean, he's basically been a guy that, that very little is expected of him really until now in MotoGP, even going back into to Moto2. Um, so it's, it's quite a new experience for, for Taka. And uh, he said that basically he got a good start, but he just, his head, he wasn't able to control his head. He wasn't able to control his emotions. And it was a yeah pretty basic mistake going into turn five. I mean, he was trying to defend from Morbidelli when Morbidelli wasn't actually attacking him. Got his line all wrong and uh, lost the front. And it was, uh, I mean, it was a cruel end because it had been a sensational weekend. On Friday, Cal Crutchlow said that his pace was so good that if we went off FP1, he would be winning the race by 11 seconds. I think Davizioso described his pace as unreal. And he was, what, 25 points back um, in the championship going into the Terrell GP. So had he won, I mean, we would be talking about him as, uh, as, as a real contender now. It really was a great opportunity for him, Neil, as you said. And David, just about Tack, obviously, pressure either makes a diamond or it breaks pipes. And unfortunately for Taka, we've seen it in the past. 
this has been an issue for him, whether it was in Moto Two or in in other circumstances. And it was it was such a shame that it happened. But what was your thoughts on it when when you were watching? I mean, there's two things. First of all, it, it was I mean, it was a stupid mistake because he got his line wrong through turn four. Um, it was too tight in turn four, which put him too wide in turn five. And when he tried to tip it in, then he um, uh, the, then the front just went. But then again, there was he was he was defending for a good reason. Um, uh, he was defending because he had Franco Morbidelli behind him. But mostly, it was exactly what Neil said. It's just it's just an experience. He hasn't been in this situation before. Um, he certainly hasn't stopped uh, started from pole before. Uh, he's never sat uh, in the middle chair in the press conference before. Um, it was all uh, it was all building on me. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens if he's in that situation again, because these sort of these are the precise the sort of situations that you learn from that you learn to not try to win it in the first three corners um, uh, uh, that you try to stay calm for a little bit longer and, and just give it patience and then once you get once you get around half a lap then you're in a rhythm the, the, the field is spread out just that little bit more just enough to be able to race normally rather than really feel uh, like you know there's 22 riders panting down the back of your neck Dave, it's always one of those things that we do forget about MotoGP at the minute, that even when a rider goes out just on their outlap any stage during a race weekend, they always still tell us that it's just so tricky. It's always, the front's always ready to fold. There's always some sort of an issue for them until they're fully up to racing temperatures and racing speeds. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's the other thing. Um, it is uh, tricky. Although, you know, it shouldn't have been an issue at uh, uh, at turn five. But the, this is the reason that they have the warm up lap is also just to get heat into the tires. Um, he had a couple of uh, he, he had a couple of corners also to actually get some uh, heat into uh, into the left hand side of the tire. The left hand side of the tire was warm. Um, uh, or, or, or already it's the most loaded uh, side of the tyre. Um, but yeah, conditions can be tricky and also with a full tank. I mean, you've got a full tank so the bike be, feels a little bit different. The You know, the, you've got 20, uh, what is it, 22 litres of fuel sort of sloshing around, um, w which can upset the, 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 the feeling of the bike. It's heavier. It, uh, it pitches a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, it's just... It takes a little bit of getting used to, but um, and when you're under a lot of pressure, there's all of these small things you have to think about. You know, when you suddenly find yourself leading the race for the first for, for the first time, just the smallest mistake can be very very costly, and it certainly was for Nakagami. Yeah, I'm just. Uh, I mean, I was I was writing about this today, um, and I actually spoke to Simon Crefar, uh, Dorna Pitlin reporter, and obviously ex uh, World Superbike and Grand Prix rider, Grand Prix race winner, asking him had he. Uh, encountered a similar sort of feeling to to Nakagami um, had where expectation just got the better of him and he said that when he first stepped into the 500 class in 98 he said the first four races all he could think about when he was going out to the grid was okay so I've got like this entire team of Yamaha technicians behind me I've got my parents who are like dependent on me and want me to have a good result I've got the Olins guys I've got like all of the Dunlop tire guys there uh, basically just all he could think about was the, the amount of people that he could possibly let down. And it got to, I think, the Italian Grand Prix, he said, when he, he realized that I just I can't keep thinking like this. And uh, he said his his way of getting around this was just training like an absolute maniac and having the mindset, okay, 
when it got to the track, I've done all I can in terms of preparation. And all I can do is just go out there and give it all, give it my all for every lap. And if that's not good enough, then so be it. Um, and surprise, surprise, after that Italian Grand Prix, his results improved dramatically. And I think he had won a race within two months. So, um, I think it's a very common thing. Um, obviously, every racer will suffer from nerves and still do suffer from nerves. And I think uh, familiarity with the situation will uh, will definitely help you overcome it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Nakagami, you know, running at the front again before the season uh, is over. Yeah, I really hope that he does learn from it because he's shown an awful lot this year. This was a rider, David, that at the start of the year, and we'll include Alex Marquez in this as well. At the start of the year, both of those riders had absolutely no expectation on them whatsoever. Nakagami, over the last couple of years, has been outshone by Crutchlow, especially, and, and then some of the other Honda riders. But when you look at Marquez as well, as long as Alex came in and was able to score points and come away with a few top 10 finishes, he was going to wildly surpass what expectation people had. Like He was very disrespectful. I'm sure when we listened back to our shows from the start of the year, we probably disrespected him as well. He's a double world champion, but for both of those Honda riders, there was no expectation coming into this year. So for Nakagami to be on pole position, expected to win a Grand Prix, that pressure must have been massive. For Alex Marquez, obviously he crashes out of the race as well, but he had two podiums in the last two races, felt that he had the pace again to be able to challenge this weekend. Uh, Alex Marquez's crash was a little bit different and he he was, you know, again, he was perfectly honest afterwards. He said he just got a bit greedy, um, just pushed a little bit too hard, turned two, uh, turn two is where you're going to crash um, if you are pushing a little bit hard because it's such a tricky corner. It's um, uh, out of turn one, you sort of you, you never brake, so you never actually load the uh, load the front. You know, you're flicking right and then accelerating. There's no weight on the front, um, and it's really easy for it for it to just wash out. And especially, um, he was uh, trying to chase down uh, Juan Mir, and um, uh, he saw the gap was getting a little bit big um, uh, and, and pushed too hard. So he, he just fell. But yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, I think also it's been good for Alex that his brother was injured at the start of the uh, start of the season because that way Alex has avoided all of the comparisons with with Mark because otherwise we would have just been talking about you know Mark well look Marcus won another race why are you 13th you know Marcus on pole why are you why can't you get out of Q1 uh, and so there's been a lot less um uh, expectation a lot less attention on Alex and Alex, Alex sort of snuck up on us just because he's had this chance to develop and uh, honestly um he's much better than i thought he was going to be um he is i mean he's been really really imp impressive he's been you know he's learned um he's he's riding a motor gp bike the way that you are you are supposed to ride a motor gp bike so yeah really impressive nakagami the same we just thought you know oh, he's going to be top 10 um uh, now and again and he was sort of seventh eighth ninth that's the sort of place you were expecting but he's again he's been sneaking up little bit by little bit and um last week he had a quite a decent uh, he had a decent weekend and then this weekend he was just outstanding and it's just not having that pressure on them has allowed them to shine yeah and uh, I, I remember just what you were saying there David about uh, Marquez obviously no pressure for him at the start of the year that pressure started to build over the last week while you said there that at turn two he was a little bit greedy 
turn two in Aragon, we've seen it catch out everyone over the years. It's always such a tricky corner. I remember I was asking one superbike rider, obviously we go to Aragon typically in April. So for free practice, three on a Saturday morning, it's 8.45, it's stone cold. And I remember asking one rider just how tricky is turn two. And they said, there is no racing line through turn two because it's just a line of survival. And <laughs> for Marquez, we saw that he got caught out by it. But what he's been able to do has been really impressive through the course this year because he's been able to show that you don't win those world championships by fluke. He took time to learn how to win in Moto3 and Moto2. He's adapted well to MotoGP. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him next year whenever he's teamed up with Nakagami, Neil. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, suddenly looking like a really, really strong team. Um, and I mean, as it stands, I think Alex has a really good chance of uh, of beating, maybe showing up Paul Spargro because uh, Spargro will come in there and obviously the KTM isn't too different from the Honda, but it's going to be a bit of a transition for him. And Marquez up to speed in the second year in some ways with a point to prove because he's been out outed from the the, the the team and he's already spoken of his desire to eventually make it back to the Repsol team after 2021 I think that's going to be a big uh, a big job for Paul um, to not only familiar himself, familiarize himself with the Honda to get good results but to beat the man that he's replacing so uh, yeah I think you know it's it's a shame that Cal Crutzlow is leaving LCR but on the basis of recent performances uh, that's going to be a really solid lineup next year and the uh David, just uh, we'll move on from Honda now to our next big topic of conversation. And that's whereas the Hondas have been able to move forward and show a lot of progress, have a lot of reason for optimism. I want to ask you about Yamaha. What do Yamaha have to look forward to in the last three rounds? Because they've been really inconsistent all the way through this year. When you look at who we perceived as being their title contenders, we were looking at Vinales and Quattararo and they're up one day, they're down the next. And then obviously... For Franco Morbidelli, we've seen him win twice. We've seen him have some issues. Bruno, Le Mans, Hareth, he's been uh, he's had some bad luck with mechanical failures. He's also had some crashes. But what do you see from Yamaha right now? Uh, well, what we've what we've got to look forward to is at a couple of tracks which have recently been resurfaced. So that means they're going to have grip, and that's going to be uh, that's going to really help. That really is crucial for the Yamahas. The Yamahas need grip. Aragon doesn't have grip. It's a very old surface. It hasn't been resurfaced since it was uh, um, uh, since it was finished in 2009. Um, we started racing there in 2010. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, um, that was and that was the big difference between Franco Morbidelli on the 2019 bike and Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quattararo on the 2020 bikes. They were both um, really trying to hang on. They were struggling with grip throughout the race, whereas um, Morbidelli was much more... What Morbidelli was, was he had figured out um, that the soft tyre was the wrong... The, the, the soft rear was the wrong tyre um, last weekend. It was good, but it could have been better. So um, he came to the second race knowing that he needed to race the, uh, uh, the the medium and they basically spent all weekend working on the medium getting it getting it to work um uh, getting it all set up you know they 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 spent all their time sort of pre uh, prepping this uh and you saw i think fabio uh, changed tires on the grid you know he went from the soft rear to the uh, to the medium rear um that 
as a rule means you don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, you haven't made up your mind. You spent your time going between two and you haven't really made a decision. And so you end up getting, uh, getting confused. So yeah, th- to me, that's what happened. Morbidelli came with a plan and he came with a plan to understand and, and, and survive this lack of grip, which Aragon has. And uh, neither Quattararo nor Vinales really had a plan. They just thought it would, um, uh, you know, they hoped they hoped they would survive and they didn't. Neil, I wanted to take a question that was asked to us by one of our listeners. That Dish 14 asked that if Rins had managed to pass Frankie at the start, who do you think would have won? Uh, I think Franco would have won because uh, Franco's pace was uh, was absolutely relentless to the very end. And after the race, Rins said that uh, with about seven laps to go, his he was on the soft-soft combination like the week before. Franco was on the medium-medium. Um, and Rins said with seven laps to go, uh, grip disappeared. And I think the deficit of half a second then went up to 2.2 seconds by the flag. Um, and yeah, I think Franco... Okay, it's a bit different, more difficult for Yamaha's when they're following riders. But if they're just following one, if they're not trapped in a, in a group, um, I think it's not quite uh, such a severe issue. And Franco was just in the zone, man. I mean, like he was. Uh, I think he likened his state of concentration to uh, what Ayrton Senna used to talk about whenever he was uh, doing qualifying laps around Monaco in the late 80s, when you feel like you're outside your body and you're in a kind of tunnel. Um, he said it was that intense. He described it as a trip. So, um, yeah, I don't think there was, a, even if Nakagami had stayed on, I don't think there was any beating Franco on Sunday. He was just in that sweet little zone where he was untouchable. Frankie was, uh, well, Alex Rins was, I think, six seconds faster than he was, or no, 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 four and a half, I think, four and a half seconds uh, uh, faster than he was last week, uh, whereas Frankie was 11 seconds faster than he, than he was last week. And afterwards, Alex Rins said, you know, I found all, all, the, all the extra stuff um, you know, all the extra time that was left in these soft tyres from last week. Um, but, you know, I just ran out of tyre. Used I got everything out of them. Uh, whereas Morbidelli had found that there was more in the medium. He knew there was more potential in the medium. And he and that was the difference between winning and uh, winning and coming second. And, and one of the interesting things was that uh, the complaints of Morbidelli uh, the previous week, uh, lack of grip whenever leant over on the edge of tires suddenly became the strength and Rins was saying that's actually where Franco was gaining on me. It was around those big long lefts that you have at turn 7, uh, turn 11, I think it is, turns 10 and 11, and then through the final corner. Uh, and we know how good the Suzuki is, uh, leant over whenever they're using the, the edge of the tires. So, you know, hats off to Morbidelli, hats off to Ramon Furcada, uh, his crew chief, um, because they got that absolutely right. Yeah, and they were super impressive the whole way through. And I have to say, like we've we've all been big fans of Frankie over the years. I remember whenever he was in Moto Two, and even whenever he, he came up from the stock classes, we you know we all looked at this kid and we thought, you know, well for one thing, whenever we saw him initially, we were there thinking like, you know, is he actually going to be able to adapt well to a Moto Two bike? Over the course of the next year, he really adapted well, and all of us became big fans of him. But what we've seen from him this year is a really complete rider. And I don't think we, we definitely didn't see that his first year on the Honda. He struggled on the Honda. He made steps forward last year, was overshadowed by Quattro Dave. But what we've seen from him this year is that he's the real deal. He's got everything going for him and he keeps a really cool head. He doesn't seem to get himself focused on anything other than what's right in front of him. And 
that's going to be the key thing through the next three races, just to be able to focus on yourself, not think about the championship, not think about having to win races, just thinking about trying to get what you can from each day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as you say, he's, he is um, he's very intelligent and he's very calm. He's very relaxed. Um, we don't call him, you know, Tranky Frankie for no reason. Um, he is very, well, we call very... Him that just because it rhymes, Dave. Well, yeah, also because it rhymes, also because it rhymes. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like, he does have that calm. He does have that, that ability to focus. And also, again, I think it helps. He doesn't have the, um, uh, he doesn't have the pressure on him. Last year, he had a bit more pressure on him, uh, because, you know, he was supposed to be the number one rider. And then he, frankly, he got his ass handed to him by his, uh, uh, by his teammate. Um, that motivated him. He learned to be a lot faster. Um, but, now, you know, it's his teammate who's leading the championship. It's his teammate um, who's on the 2020 bike. He's on the 2019 bike. And so he is just riding what he's got. He's not trying to, uh, you know, he's not expecting more from the machine. He's just like, okay, this is what I've got. Let's go out. Let's see what I can do with it. And because of that, he's relying more on himself. If he fails, he has less to lose. He can say, well, you, what you expect is a 2019 bike. Uh, so he's in a he's in a really, really good uh, situation. I, I particularly enjoy the, um, uh, the the answer I think on uh, Friday or no so, sorry it's Saturday in the uh, in the press conference and then Sunday in the press conference where um, Saturday in the press conference it was uh, both him and Alex Rins were asked you know are you going to help your teammates uh, your, your teammates are ahead of you in the championship and could win the title are you going to help them and they basically said, well, you know, once it's mathematically impossible, maybe. Um, uh, and I, I, can't, I think it was Alex, uh, Alex Rins, who said, yeah, I'm prepared to help Joanne Mir by, uh, by going out and winning the race and taking points off of, uh, off of everyone else, which was very generous of him. Uh, but then Frankie, um, was asked in, uh, in the press conference after the race, like, you know, it, 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 Fabio and uh, uh, Fabio and Maverick are struggling. Should Yamaha put all their cards on you? And now, and he was like, Wait a minute. Yesterday, I was supposed to be sacrificing myself for my teammate, and now, uh, now I'm sort of you know the big deal. Now I'm the big cheese. They, they, they are the, uh, now they should all be betting on me. Make your minds up, lads. So it was, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that was th that was fantastic, and also typical of the man. Typical of his. He has a, quite a wry sense of humour and very. He doesn't. He never gets ahead of himself. You you feel that he never gets ahead of himself. He never. Um, he's not going to just sort of suddenly develop uh, uh, ideas above his station, sort of thing. He's got a very. He's a very sort of level, sort of a uh, uh, sort of a fella. Yeah, I often think that it's worth remind remi reminding people that a lot of the times when journalists ask a question, it's not always because it's what they believe. It's also because they want the quote and they and Matt Oxy when he asked the question to Rins and Morbidelli, he knows exactly what both of those guys are going to be thinking. But sometimes you need them to say it. You need them to say, I'm still fighting for this championship. And Neil, sorry, go on ahead, David. Um, Michael Scott, I mean, I remember being in a debrief with Casey Stoner once and Michael Scott was really almost badgering uh, Casey for a particular quote. And I was asking him, I asked him afterwards, you really wanted to, why, you were really pressing this issue. Why was that? What were you after? And he, and he, told me it's not about the question it's about the answer that's what they're what you're after you're trying to get an answer out of them you're trying to get a writer to answer something and so sometimes you ask stupid questions um knowing that they're stupid questions because you want to hear what the answer is honestly that's why i asked the stupid question your honor <laughs> <laughs> nice get out. Build, nice. build a career out of it mate build a career out of it <laughs>
Neil, I'm going to ask you a stupid question. Second in the World Championship is Fabio Quattararo, but he's only scored 15 points in the last three races. Is he out of the title contention right now? <laughs> he's absolutely not out of the title contention. He has been on a, a rotten run, it has to be said. Uh, I mean, there's been mistakes, there's been inexperience, there's just been some not very good riding, to be frank. Um, there's been, I mean, Quadrao has been looking in from the outside, you know, been trying to throw it away. I mean, there was another really bad performance, I think. Um, it was all over the place. He was making mistakes as early as lap three, he ran wide into turn one. Um, and you can you could tell on Saturday, I, I came away from his debrief, I'm not sure if you were the same, Dave, on Saturday thinking it's going to be a really, really tough race for him because he was just like, you know, this isn't one of my favorite tracks and we'll see at Valencia. He was getting his excuses in early. Um, and it's it's a strange thing, Fabio's season. It's a very strange thing because when he's been good, he has been the best rider in the world this year. He's been sensational. But that's been at two tracks arrest in Barcelona and the rest of the time I mean yeah there's been mitigating circumstances and yes he probably would have won the race by a mile at Le Mans had it not rained um, but you know there's been frankly a lot of very average performances from him um, and it's reminded me quite a bit actually of uh, his last season of Moto2 in 2018 because that year if we kind of look at when he got his, his setup sorted from the Italian Grand Prix that year there were a couple of rounds where he was sensational. Uh, Assen, Barcelona, Mategi. And then the, the rest of the time, he was, you know, 6th, 10th, ninth. It wasn't consistently there fighting for race wins. And this year, I think, is, is really like that as well. Um, um, so, no, I, I, but we're going to Valencia, and, and Valencia is one of those tracks that he is very good at. Um, he's definitely not out of the title race. However... With each passing week, I think the chances of him lifting the title are less. Yeah, it's going to be great next year with uh, um, Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quartararo in the factory Yamaha team, both of whom are uh, notoriously consistent and uh, <laughs> score pretty much the same results week in, week out. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I love how Vinales was, uh, you know, that, that put to bed his, uh, his Moto2 excuse. Oh, I, I can't ride because of all the Moto2 rubber on the track. Well, Moto2 yeah. went after the MotoGP race on Sunday Maverick. And, uh, you know, all of that promise that you showed in FP4 still didn't materialize. So, so what is it? Yeah, um, I mean, it, I think it's it's. I was talking to uh, Peter Bomber about this earlier, and I think it's it's to do the, the the Michelin's are very very critical on temperature, and so if you set up for a particular temperature, um, because on the on on Sunday afternoon the temperatures were just a little bit less. I think they were two or three degrees less than last week, four degrees less than uh, or four degrees less than last week, a little bit less than than the week before. So you're if you've set your bike up perfectly for one temperature and the and the temperature goes down a little bit and it falls outside of you know that that perfect setup which you had then you're still fast because i mean where did maverick finished uh seventh, seventh which is you know it's not horrendous um previously he's been sort of like you know 13th 14th 15th something like that he was reasonable but not fantastic and it was the same with Quattararo they were you know they were just mediocre frankly and I think that was that they would set up to complete to exploit a particular set of circumstances which didn't materialize well let's talk about one writer that has probably 
you know, made mediocre Binaforte, really. Shawan Mayer, because he just keeps coming through from the middle of the pack. And as the race wears on, he gets stronger and stronger. Dave, you were talking there about how for Vinales, maybe they're just looking at just having that absolutely perfect setup for a specific temperature range. Suzuki and Mir seem to have a much more wide operating window, Neil. They seem to be able to look at it and say, you know what? Everyone's going to struggle at some stage during the race. Let's just make sure that we don't have the peaks and the valleys, that we've just got something that's a little bit more within the medium and just try and stay within that for as long as possible and uh, we'll come away with a podium. And, you know, for for Mir, that's what he's been able to build his title lead on, just being able to grind out those top five finishes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would maybe take issue with you calling his form mediocre. I mean, that's a little <laughs> bit harsh for a guy that's uh, in his. It's very, it's very harsh, Neil. <laughs> but what can I say? The word was put in front of me, so I used it as a very, very bad segue to talk about our championship leader, who's impressed all of us with what he's been able to do this year. And for for the record, I want to say that probably the most overused stat or fact that I've heard from sitting at home over the course of the last couple of months is. Juan Mir hasn't won a race since 2017, whenever he won in Moto3. Who of these title contenders has actually won a world championship? Juan Mir's won one. And whenever opportunities came up in Moto3, he always got the job done. He knows how to win a world championship. And he knows that what's important is to be able to win the championship by the time we finish in Portimao. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, be critical of Mir's race. It was another good race considering he, he came through from 12th on the grid. I would, however, be very critical of um, his qualifying because his qualifying was just a, a disaster. I was watching it thinking, what are you doing, man? Because he was he was dallying around the place. His entire first run did not get going. Didn't set a, a lap time, I don't think, a competitive lap time. Went into the pits and we know that when Mir is going for a lap time, it sometimes takes a little bit of it takes a few laps to build up and it gets faster gradually and faster gradually. And he still hadn't set lap time with, I think, two minutes to go. And it was like, you've just completely shot yourself in the foot. I mean, had he had he started from the front row, um, I think he would have he would have been with Rins at least. Um, but then I think when he uh, when Alex Marquez crashed out, he realized, okay, Morbidelli, Rins, they're not my direct championship competitors. Um, and he, he admitted that the championship did come to his mind. And that's all he has to do now. Um, he just has to measure where his closest rivals are and take advantage of that. And you can't blame him for it because it's a very mature approach for a guy that's, what, 23 years old. He's in his fifth year in Grand Prix racing. Uh, it's, it's ridiculously mature. Um, however, there are just a few moments where it's a little... You just think, ah, oh. I mean, his pace was so, so good in FP4 on Saturday. And you just thought, get yourself in the first two rows and you could be really dangerous. And then he, he blew it. Uh, he said that during FP4, he'd been working on the medium tire because he wanted to get the mediums working. And, you know, he's race proof that he did that. Uh, and then he jumped off of the uh, off of the mediums and onto the softs for, the, for qualifying. And they gave him such a different feel that it took him, you know, just too long to get get the feeling back to understand what it meant and by that time it was too late which yeah as neil says it's a massive weakness you need to be on it straight away um and yeah if you don't have sort of 10 people in front of you to overtake then the races are uh, an awful lot uh, awful lot easier dave we've got a couple of questions in as well just about juan Mir, and uh, one of them is from modo len 
and he's asked that this is obviously a season where we talked an awful lot or the, t- the topics of conversation that earlier in the year were all about how this championship should have an asterisk beside it, whether it was because of coronavirus, whether it was because Mark Marquez wasn't around. But he's also asking, would there be an asterisk against Juan Mir's name if he won the championship without winning a Grand Prix? Um, uh, no, Juan Mir is, um, uh, this is his MAGA championship, his Make Alzamora Great Again championship, where he is uh, repeating uh, Emilio Alzamora's 125cc championship from 1999, where he was champion just by winning a race. Of course, it's not going to de- uh, uh, detract from his championship if he if he wins without winning a race um jack miller said the same dovicioso said the same after the race no 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 if he wins then he deserves it he deserves it because he's been on the podium he's been out he's been so relentless and it is so competitive the whole class is so incredibly competitive that just to finish on the podium so often i think it's six podiums now um is that you are doing an outstanding job so, yeah, no, I mean, the Suzuki is, I think, now fairly clearly the best bike. It's not, I mean, it's outstanding at turning um, and it's got enough horsepower. It's good enough on the brakes. It's good enough everywhere else for it to be, uh, to, to make it superior. It has no weaknesses, which other bikes do. Um, Juan Mir has been really, really strong. His only weakness has been uh, in qualifying, um, but he's been really strong. He's been able to show that he can fight. He's been able to show that he can lead, uh, that he can you know, ride fast on his own. Uh, he's just been really, um, uh, he, he's just been really, really good. So there's, there's no, um, others have failed and Juan Mir has not failed. The others have tripped up. He has not tripped up. Um, he absolutely deserves it. The MAGA campaign. I'll tell you what, Dave, that, unfortunately, <laughs> that's something that's going to stick in my head for a really long time. Neil, we've got it there. Well, <laughs> so that's unfortunately, what you you're just like a worm. Uh, Neil, we've got another question in as well about uh, Juan Mir, and it comes in from possibly the best uh, Twitter handle I've seen in a long time. Oh, feck off is asking us, championship or not, how important is it for Mir to win a Grand Prix this year? I would say that it's, I mean, to win the championship, it, it might not be that important. Um, I would say the championship is the most important thing this year. Mir is going to be around for a long, long time after 2020, and he will have ample opportunity to pick up a whole slew of victories. Um, I think this year, if he doesn't win the championship, it'll be a bit of a blow. Um, championship over victories in 2020, every day of the week for him at this stage. People sort of half remember winners, but they all remember champions. Uh, a championship is worth so much more than a, than a race winning. You're not going to throw that away uh, just because you think you might have a chance uh, of, of grabbing a win and you take a ridiculous dive up the inside somewhere, which was always going to end up in a, in a, in a disaster and then end up losing the championship. Yeah, and uh, obviously for Suzuki as well, really important to have another champion. Obviously, you look back 20 years ago, it was Kenny Roberts. You look back before that, Kevin Schwantz, and then obviously the Barry Sheen era as well. So for Suzuki, really important for them to be able to come away with a championship and just prove all the hard work that they've been able to that they've been able to do and to put in. But on the other side of that coin, we're going to move on to a manufacturer that needs to win a championship and looks possibly even further away than ever from doing it and that's Ducati because Neil even though we've got Davi still in with a shout of winning the world championship the clock's ticking down on him and it's been such a 
tough season for Ducati. It's been so inconsistent. We've had it one week where, like last weekend, Zarco was the fastest rider. And then other weeks where Zarco has been all the way down the field. This was a week where Peko Bagnaia was pretty much invisible all the way through. Davi and Petrucci both were qualifying all the way down the field and just trying to scramble to get themselves close to the top 10 in the race. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. Um, I mean, you say rightly that Davizioso mathematically has a chance of, he's still in the championship fight, but I mean, I think um, I think last weekend was the final nail in his coffin, uh, his championship hopes. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it, it's interesting because he, he touched on what you just said there, Steve. If you look at Ducati riders through this year, some have excelled on occasion. Zarco was sensational in Bernal. He was fantastic at Aragon. He was great in the rain at Le Mans. Uh, but the rest of the time, he's frankly been quite quite average. Um, and Banyaya, I mean, what the hell's happened there? I mean, he looked close to unbeatable at Mizano. Uh, great at Jerez, but awful, like just awful at Aragon. Could not get his head around the, the situation at all and then Davizioso has not really been spectacular at all this year I think uh, Austria is the one race where he looked like a winner um, but the rest of the time he's frankly been by his standards quite average um, and it's, it's it's puzzling because um, they're still complaining about what they were complaining about at the Valencia test nearly one full calendar year ago they still haven't got their head around the new rear tyre um, they still are complaining about the turning issues of the bike. Um, and it's, I mean, Aragon just kind of brought all of that to a head. I mean, uh, I think the guys were saying that their that they're turning deficit to the other machines was really um, noticeable um, at Motorland Aragon, um, a track that, you know, demands a bike to turn uh, quite quickly um, and another thing was that they just weren't able to make any progress they were basically running the same lap times as the Aragon Grand Prix the previous week whereas all the other manufacturers made a step forward we saw KTM make a massive step forward um, in the, the, the week between um, and Ducati just haven't been able to do that um, it's it's really confusing it's quite difficult to understand and as you say Steve yeah they look more uh, they look further away from winning the title now than they have at any other stage in the last five or six years. Dave, Neil just mentioned there that Ducati sort of st- stayed still from one Aragon weekend to the next. That's actually been a bit of a trend for them through the course of the back-to-backs. Other manufacturers have been able to make a much bigger step forward. Think back to Hareth. Dovi was able to be on the podium for the first one and then he was fighting it out for eighth, ninth position in the second race. That's kind of been one of the trends that we've been able to see during the course of all these triple headers. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that, that's a very good point. It's the same in Austria. The, you know, Dovi wins the first race and then they, uh, you know, I can't even remember where he finished in uh, in Styria in the second Austrian Grand Prix, but certainly not in the top four. Um, it, it was, it does seem like they are, this bike has a capability or has a, it has a potential and they get to the potential quite quickly, but they can't push beyond it. Uh, and frankly, it, it 
it's also quite worrying that Ducati are, are, haven't been able to fix this. Uh, like Neil was saying, um, Dovi sort of like pointed it out, like there are all of these riders who are up and down and up and down, um, uh, uh, but none of them have been able to actually, you know, find a permanent solution because they're all behind him in the championship. Um, and Ducati have been unable to pinpoint this, to find a way to use this rear tyre uh, and use the strengths of this of this rear tyre uh, to, to perform so yeah it's it's frankly it's a bit mystifying really they're they should be much better neil we've got a question in from dave mcdaniel about ducati and he's asking who's the best ducati rider this year and also a little bit about who's the most disappointing ducati rider this year oh good one actually um could the answer be be the same person for both of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a good point, Steve, because in some respects, Davizio has always been the the best Ducati rider. He's been the most constant. He's never been spectacular, but he's rarely been dismal. Um, and he's the best Ducati rider in the championship. So in some respects, yes, Davizio is the best one. Uh, however, I think Bagnaia, just because at two tracks that maybe weren't, well, that aren't Ducati tracks, Hareth and Mizano, he was, he was sensational. And, and during those weeks, he looked like, the savior of Ducati. Oh my God, we, we have a rider where suddenly this turning deficit is no longer an issue and he knows how to use this rear tire. Um, however, that that obviously didn't go to plan in, in Aragon. Um, I think the most disappointing rider this year has been has been Dovi. Yeah. Um, just because he's, he's uh, part of it is Ducati's fault, but I think a part of it is is also um, down to the riding style and, and Davizioso just hasn't really been able to adapt his riding style I'm, just, I'm not saying it's all on him, but that has definitely been a factor in his lack of results. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is, yes, he hasn't been able to adapt his his riding style, but um, Ducati haven't been able to build a bike which can manage with these with these tyres. And they've had these tyres, you know, since last year. They've been able to test on them. They know what they're going to be like. Um, they should have been able to do it. For me, um, for me, I think it's Pekka Banyaya. For precisely the reasons which you give, which is that he has been outstanding at some place and he did look like the savior of Ducati. Uh, and now you're sort of like thinking, oh, right, okay, Factory Ducati next year is going to be Pekka Banyar and Jack Miller. That's going to be fun. It's going to be almost as much fun as um, uh, Maverick and Fabio at, uh, at the Factory Yamaha team. It's, um, it's really quite, quite concerning because, I mean, Jack Miller has been outstanding at some place and the where jack miller has been consistent he has been able to bang out a really fast lap from the ducati no matter what the but what shape the bike is in um even when he's had absolutely abysmal pace he's still been able to get through to q2 um qualify reasonably well um but you know there are no points for qualifying yeah the unfortunate thing for someone like jack is i think over the course of the last two triple headers he's got 26 27 points so it does show that inconsistency for him but like you said as well Paco Bagnaia he's 15th 16th in the championship obviously he's had his injuries he's had other issues as well but uh, for Paco it's just been that story of inconsistencies all the way through for all of the Ducati riders but I want to move on to some news that came up today and unfortunately it's not inconsistent it's another consistency Dave, we just saw the news today that Bradley Smith has been dropped for the end of the season. And it's another time where we've seen Aprilia 
make a big change. Another time where Aprilia just try and find a genie in a bottle, really, between now and the end of the season, potentially. Yeah, it's completely mystifying. Um, it is, uh, as I think somebody pointed out, um, uh, another example of British riders not being um, uh, not uh, not not lasting very long in um, in Aprilia because we saw that you know Sam Lowe's got dropped, we saw Scott Ridding got dropped, um, and now Bradley Smith's being dropped. To an extent, I can understand them putting Lorenzo Savadori on the bike. Savadori won the Italian Championship, the Italian Superbike Championship for them. Um, so you reward him for his uh, for his efforts. Uh, Bradley Smith has been doing a you know he's been doing a perfectly reasonable job. He made a lot of progress over the uh, since he started because the switch back to racing again is a it, it's a big sort of mental step. You have to get used to pushing and and taking risk again. Um, you know he's not he's not being his teammate but then I don't think uh, I'm not sure that anyone would be beating his teammate uh, would be beating Alicia Spargaro on the Aprilia at the moment because uh, Alicia Spargaro just overrides completely overrides that bike all of the time um it's also a bit mystifying in the sense that you're getting really consistent data back from Bradley Smith. You know what you've got. You know any changes you do make, uh, it will help. But there's there's been sort of some friction in there. There were some comments that he made after um, the technical manager's debrief at Barcelona, I think. There's been some friction there for a little while. We, we saw that with some comments made by the uh, the technical manager's debrief in Barcelona, where Aprilia racing track manager Paolo Bonora basically sort of said, you know, it's only really Alesh who's pushing the bike. And then when we told um, Bradley about uh, what Paolo Bonora had said, he said, oh, right, well, that's interesting to know. It's good to know. I've got to make a decision soon. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll take that into account which suggests that there's been more friction behind the scenes than we than we understand so yeah it's uh, it's a bit mystifying yeah and dave obviously you're the one that's done all the heavy lifting on the podcast we're just carrying around some <laughs> other la- oh 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 sorry sorry neil neil you've got, you've got something to say there Oh, well, that's interesting for you to say that, Steve. <laughs> uh, I guess I've got a decision to make in uh, the next month. So, uh, you know, that uh, that new podcast that I've heard those, those other journalists are doing does look quite intriguing. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think um, just to add what Dave was saying, um, Bradley made comments after the French Grand Prix. Uh, he had two pretty big crashes there. One of them was in the race, um, in the rain. And, uh, you know, he, he was basically like saying, hey, that wasn't my fault uh, you know our bikes electronics are still not very good in the rain and uh, there were some inconsistencies with the electronics whenever I was leant over at full angle and uh, you know it bit me it spit me it spat me off but I it was it wasn't my fault and that's another example perhaps of um, well um, him revealing that uh, some some things were were not really as they should have been on the bike um, he also mentioned I think last weekend that um, he, he doesn't really have any interest in, in going back to being just a test rider. Um, he is at the moment pushing to become a full-time rider again. Um, so, yeah, you wonder if these little things have um, have kind of caught up with them. I mean, Aprilia do make some puzzling decisions. Um, and Salvatore is Italian. He has, by all accounts, been doing a reasonable job at some recent tests. But, I mean, Salvatore is, is, a, is a perfectly good rider um but i'm not sure I, I, yeah i find this one really puzzling really really puzzling 
Yeah, you don't think he's going to. You don't think he's going to outperform uh, Bradley Smith, especially no. sort of like coming in this late, which no. would be. So yeah, it, it doesn't. I mean, yes, it, it makes political sense, but no, um, no sporting sense if you see what I mean. So, uh, and it's also it's interesting because you know Alicia Spargaro has been uh, has been unsparing in his criticism of Aprilia as well, um, but he's the only bugger who can ride the bike, so it's not surprising that he gets a free pass where Bradley Smith doesn't. Yeah, and obviously for Brad, he's got, I don't know what it is, 120 Grand Prix starts in MotoGP under his belt. He's got a few years with Michelin experience. Salvadori's got a handful of tests to be able to call on. So I don't really understand what you get for him from the final three rounds, other than the chance to prove that he's not the rider to have on your bike next year as a racer in case Ianone has his legal issues in case... Crutchlow doesn't sign and you've got to try and find someone you know what you're going to get from Brad and maybe Aprilia need to find out what they're going to get from Salvadori I'm not too sure that jumping into the white hot competition of MotoGP in 2020 is the time for any rider to be able to prove themselves but maybe for Aprilia this is just to cover themselves off as well potentially for next year uh, yeah I mean I don't think anyone's really expecting Salvadori to be to be the guy that might step into the, the team full time if, if Iannone's um, ban gets upheld and, and Crutchlow decides to call it a day you know out of the blue um, but yeah it's it's puzzling it, it is puzzling um, you know I think another thing you have to factor in is, is Smith has been doing basically the job of a test rider at most races this year you know so it's not as if he's just been able to focus on race setup uh, setting a fast time he's been having to dedicate full sessions to being a test rider testing certain things on, out on the bike um, so yeah it's a, it's a tough break for Bradley Obviously, for everyone that you've got a week off between now and the Valencia Grand Prix, so a chance for all the teams to try and take stock of what's gone on. But we've also got a little bit left in today's show. We'll have a quick look at Moto2 and Moto3 as well. Obviously, those seasons are coming to a close now as well. But Neil, what was your thoughts over the course of the weekend for both of those classes? Well, my, my, my thoughts are that Sam Lowe's has suddenly found himself in a, in a ludicrously good position um, for winning the championship this year because his Aragon haul was perfect, 50 points from 50. In fact, his, his triple header haul was perfect, 75 points from 75. And, and in that time, Luca Marini has just crumbled from a guy that looked a, a dead cert to, to win the championship to becoming a bit a bit hopeless and, and, and a guy that's really showed the strains of uh, becoming that champ- championship favourite um, so Lowe's was magnificent uh, at the Terrawa Grand Prix absolutely dominant I don't think we've seen a, a ride that dominant in any class this year in fact we haven't it was the biggest winning margin in, in any category um, and yeah he was I mean he was just on a, another level I was looking through the, the fastest laps posted by each rider in the race and Sam's fastest lap was six tenths faster than the next fastest rider in the race six tenths I mean that's just insane in Moto2 you don't see that yeah um, what is going on with Luca Marini Neil I mean uh, it it's puzzling obviously you know a lot more about it than I do I don't pay nearly enough attention to it but Luca Marini like you say he's gone from you know sort of having the title nailed on to struggling for points yeah I mean I think I think we have to look at the at the crash in in free practice too at the French Grand Prix as, as the reason it was a massive massive crash and he shrugged it off and, and tried to make out that everything was fine afterwards his team tried to make out that he was fine 
physically. Um, but uh, a, a crash of that magnitude must have some physical and mental impact on you. And he said that that was affecting him going into the, the first race weekend at Aragon. Um, yeah, he, he basically made a, he was playing catch up at the first Aragon, made a little mistake uncharacteristically. And then the second one, um, he was saying that uh, basically Moto2 bikes all use the same engines, obviously. And the, the engines are changed after every third race or every fourth race. Basically every bike on the grid, they have their, they have a new engine which has been resurfaced, uh, fitted to their bike. And Marini was saying that um, he felt his machine for the Terrawell Grand Prix with a fresh engine was quite a bit down on top speed to the engine that he had previously been using. So that's why he, that's what he was pointing to. However, uh, looking at his struggles through free practice, the engine wasn't really coming into it um, and it was just completely lost for setup. And I think part of that is just uh, the job that Lowe's was doing because because Lowe's was so relentless, um, it almost would have been beneficial to Marini to just almost discount what Lowe's was doing and looking at the rest because you take Lowe's out of it and it was actually quite close with uh, with the rest of the guys, Di Antonio, Bastianini, uh, Remy Gardner was up there as well. Um, but it just seemed that on Friday in particular, Marini was just crumbling. He couldn't get either of the tires to work, uh, either of the two tire compounds to work. And it was, it just went completely downhill. But I still think that the, the physical uh, effects of that Le Mans crash have been, have to, have to be a factor. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, to give him, you know, like a, have a week off recover and then come back again that's going to be interesting but like you were saying like the transformation of, of Sam Lowe's is fantastic it, it's just amazing this weekend I mean I was waiting for debriefs while it was on but I was watching on the timing and he was just absolutely relentless it was a, just just an astounding performance by Lowe's and the difference it makes being in a good team uh, with people around you that you trust um, trusting the the equipment you've got underneath you uh, being in the right headspace, being all, all of that is makes such a massive, massive difference that that you all of a sudden uh, it's a turnaround. And to me, one of the most interesting things is also because we, you know, motorcycle races we've seen this incredibly macho sport, you know, danger and physical danger and uh, and strength and all the rest of it. And uh, we always end up talking about, you know, the the riders are talking about their feeling on the bike and their relationship with their crew chief and all the rest of it. And there's all these feminine um uh, so-called feminine uh, sort of attributes which are uh, which are spoken about you know like oh i feel you know i trust my crew chief i i have complete faith in him i trust my crew i feel good with these with with these people around me it turns into you know it's such an emotional sport it really is like it, it all happens in these uh, the, the most important six inches in racing between your ears um and that's definitely the case with with sam lowe sam lowe is in exactly the right place um and it's really paying off for him he's just riding astonishingly well yeah i was chatting to sam actually about that dave a couple of weeks ago after the first win in le mans and i was asking him you know what's been the big difference maker and he wasn't saying anything really in terms of riding he says he's made a step with his riding he feels good but most of that comes from the fact that he's got that as you said the trust and he said that the biggest thing that's actually made a difference for that trust is he can say to his crew chief I don't know. And the team then looked through the data and they looked through everything to f try and find the solution. 
but they don't put the pressure on him to actually find the solution. Whereas he said that some of the other teams he's been with, everyone's looking at the rider and it's, you've got to find something to be able to almost magic a solution. I think uh, another thing is, Dave touched on it, um, relationship with the crew chief, also relationship with the team. I mean, Mark VDS, we've always known, has been probably the best team in Moto2. If you want to know why, I mean, look at Sam Lowe's and, and what he said this year. He said basically every track he's gone to in FP1 when he leaves the pit lane for the first time, his crew chief and his crew have put a setting which is roughly in the ballpark of where he wants to be. Now, he compared that to last year when he was with Grissini, a perfectly good professional team in the Moto2 class. And last year, he said there were occasions where he was still adding a couple of teeth uh, you know, to, to basically play with his gearing in morning warm-up, like making big, big changes on a Sunday morning. So what that does to your state of mind must be quite profound, knowing basically when you get into that rhythm, you know on Friday morning that your bike is going to be roughly where you want it to be. And, um, you know, uh, I think, Steve, you mentioned <clears throat> a couple of other things, you know, and, and David's mentioned how he's worked, I think, in the mental aspect of his riding. Um yeah, he's he's a, he's a different. Well, he's he's looking more like the rider that we we knew when he first came into the series back in in fourteen as a as a world supersport champion. Yeah, and I think that one of the big things that we see with a lot of riders is that they can make that change, and we've seen that as well, David, with Jake Dixon over the course of the last triple header. He's really been able to make that next step. We saw him in Austria; he was strong, and Bruno as well. We saw that there was flashes of what he could do. But the last three races, he's been able to get himself, whether it was leading in Le Mans, obviously was very impressive, but Aragon as well. Both weekends, he was able to really show that he could be a fixture as well in that leading group. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, his transformation has been fascinating as well. And again, yeah, the, the the Patronus team, they're fantastic in MotoGP. They're also fantastic in Moto2. They're just that they are one of the best run outfits in um, uh, in the entire paddock. And Jake Dixon has really, really benefited from that. Um, he's really come into his own. I was honestly, I was a bit skeptical of Dixon when he first came in. Um, his first year was nothing to write home about. There was nothing really uh, particularly impressive there. Um, uh, but he's transformed into a genuinely competitive uh, uh, Moto2 rider. And he's, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he's going to be the, uh, uh, a, a Moto2 championship favourite next year, but he's going to be in the running. He's going to be one of the guys that you have to beat if you want to be champion, uh, and if you can't beat him, if there aren't enough people who can beat him, then he's going to end up as champion. And Neil, obviously, you're also working quite a lot in Moto3. And let's talk pretty quickly about that as well. Obviously, the show has been running for quite a while at this stage, but we'll talk briefly about Moto3 and what we've seen from Albert Arenas, because again, this triple header looks crucial for him to be able to give himself that chance of winning the championship because whereas he's been able to have good, strong performances at the three rounds that we've had over the last triple header, his main rival, Ayagura, struggled pretty much in each Grand Prix. We've had uh, Vietti show a lot of potential. He won one of the races, he won in Le Mans. We've seen a few other riders get to the front, but everywhere we've gone this year, Arenas has been able to be in that leading four or five positions. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, Arenas was was pretty much two corners away from having one hand on the championship. I think if he had won that race on Sunday, you would be looking at him and thinking he's going to be pretty, pretty hard to beat. Uh, as it was, however, Jamal Masia passed him and 
as Arenas tried to defend his position going into the final turn, he almost lost the front and then allowed uh, Ayuma Sasaki and uh, Kaido Toba to pass him and finished fourth. Um, and I think if anyone could take the, the title off him, it would be it would be Masia because uh, Masia has been, since Austria won, I think Masia has been probably the fastest guy in the Moto3, Moto3 Championship. Um, he just wasn't really able to um, to seal the deal as such. And we know how frantic and crazy uh, the racing is in Moto3. That is obviously a very big factor and quite difficult to master. And I think I, I was counting this up. Uh, Massey had five occasions from Austria 1 to uh, Le Mans where he was basically leading on the last lap or within half a tenth uh, or sorry, half a second off off the leader on the final lap, yet wasn't able to win. Um, so he's helped a little bit by the fact that he's on the fastest bike in the on the grid. I think that's quite clear, quite apparent from what we saw in uh, in Aragon. Um, but he's riding really well, and and frankly, I had Massey down as one of the favourites this year, and I'm surp- I was surprised that he was so far off the pace earlier in the season. So uh, it's going to be really interesting seeing how he does in the final three races. I don't think Arenas is a guy that is going to just go to Valencia and clear off and win both races. Um, and I think um, with Agura in some bad form, Vietti, I'm not sure whether he can win the championship, but I think Massey is definitely a guy to, to look out for in these final three races. And uh, yeah, that brings us to a question as well, Neil, that came in from uh, Bradley Baker, who's asked, Will Pablo Nieto be looking over his shoulder as titles start to slip away from the VR46 team? And that could be in both Moto2 and also Moto3 this year. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say so, no. No, I don't think you could pin Marini's struggles on, on Pablo Nieto. Um, and, you know, Nieto, obviously part of the the, the, the Nieto family, um, who all have pretty close links with uh, with Valentino Rossi. Um, no, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's the running of that squad that uh, that has been the issue. Um, even though, I mean, they suffered two pretty dire weekends in uh, in Aragon. Um, I would say it's more down to uh, the circumstance and the riders. And Neil, obviously, just one last thing about Moto3. We've seen Raul Fernandez take five poles this year. He's always qualified well. I think he's always qualified inside the top two rows of the grid maybe he missed out in the, on on a top six qualifying once this season he's been super fast all the way through and we got news at the weekend that he's going to move up to Moto2 next year yeah that was a bit of a bolt from the blue and um, that news was uh, came out on Sunday on race day um, that Fernandez is going to move up alongside Remy Gardner and Aki Ayo's Moto2 team next year and he's going to be replaced by Pedro Acosta who is dominating the Rebel Rookies Cup um, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, Fernandez is very tall. I think uh, it's quite apparent. He qualifies extremely well. Um, he's very good in free practice. However, in race racing circumstances, he doesn't quite have that knack of, of, of winning in leading groups. His height may well influence uh, the tyre's behaviour and tyre durability, and that could be one of the reasons why he has not been so successful this year. So I think Aki is clearly... Uh, clearly uh, pushing to get him up to Moto2. Um, he's a big talent and maybe this move is coming at the right time. David, obviously we always cede to Neil on Moto2 and Moto3 matters, but we never cede to you on who your big winner from the weekend was. So who was your winner from the Terrawell Grand Prix? Uh, I I mean, it has to be Frankie Morbidelli um, because he was brilliant. Um, he rode a superb race and he, you know, he, 
to me, he won the race on Friday uh, just with his preparation. So, uh, and and the way he managed the race was outstanding. There's just it was yeah impressive, and he gets himself back into the um, uh, into the championship fight. Um, uh, he silences a few critics. Uh, and uh, the super stock class pays off again. And Neil, who was your big winner? Uh, my big winner is KTM because they had a, a pretty rotten Aragon GP. Um, yet in Terrawell, they had three bikes inside the top 10. They had Paulus Pogger on fourth. They had Miguel Oliver in sixth, Iker Lecon in ninth. And uh, they had a pretty interesting method of uh, of achieving those results. They basically got all four riders to uh, to work in, in, in kind of different directions, but also in unison as such and uh, basically they pulled all of their data i think paulus bogger was saying after fp3 on saturday morning he was completely lost uh Lecona and miguel Oliveira had really strong sessions and paul basically looked at what Lecona was doing said put that on my bike put those tires on my bike and uh, he was able to use that medium front which is really crucial for that bike um and uh, yeah turned it around and yeah i mean it's uh it was it was quite an impressive way of working i'm surprised it's taken him this long to work that way to be honest but um what paul was 11 seconds faster uh, on sunday than the K the fastest ktm in the previous weekend's race and um, that's some going good shout and stephen what about yourself uh well you've both picked two really good ones i'll be honest the ktm one especially neil a really good shout because we didn't get a chance to talk about just how good a job that they did but uh, for me the biggest winner this weekend was not so much this weekend but obviously i haven't been on the show for a while so probably for me the biggest winner from the last couple of weeks was the British industry because we've spent the last couple of months really wondering what's going to happen when Crutchlow retires, what's going to happen in the UK for in terms of the riders coming through. And suddenly it looks quite bright at the minute as well. Obviously, we've seen Sam Lowe's over the last few years have his struggles, but we saw what he could do in the past, being able to win Grand Prix, challenge for championships. It looks like it's all coming together for him right now. Jake Dixon has obviously made his step forward, but also really important news was that John McPhee is going to stay in Moto3 as well. So that potentially gives the British bike industry championship contenders in Moto3 and Moto2 next year, which is really positive because... Obviously, for all of us, we've all worked in the British industry over the last few years. It's important to be able to see that growth, see that potential coming through as well. So for me, the biggest winner over the last couple of weeks, just uh, the British riders to show that they're going to get those opportunities. That's a, that's a big shout from, um, uh, from Steve English, the Irishman. Well, I know where my paychecks have come from, Dave, and they've always come with the Queen's head on the notes. So uh, as long as that can continue being the case, I'm more than happy for it. But I think for me, it's just it's important to to have countries like that well represented in the Grand Prix classes. We've obviously moved past where it was always Spanish riders and then Italian riders that were getting those opportunities. Now we're really getting... Lots of other countries have those chances as well going forward, so it's really positive. Neil, I went to Dave first for his big winner. Who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, big loser was uh, Fabio Quartararo again. I think he's uh, got uh, this accolade in the last couple of shows that we've done, um, just because it wasn't a very good weekend again for him. Um, and he comes away from the recent uh, triple header. Uh, having scored just, uh, as I do quick maths in my head, 15 points from a possible 75. I mean, that is not championship form um, by any stretch. Um, and it was, a, it was a race that, I mean, I don't think he got it quite right throughout the weekend. Um, he 
didn't ride, I don't think, that well. Uh, there was lots of mistakes in his performance. And, um, yeah, I mean, it is all the worst whenever his teammate is able to do what he did on a year-old bike. Well, more or less a year-old bike. So, uh, yeah, Fabio, it's uh, it's not been a good run. And uh, he's given himself a whole lot of work to do to win this championship. And Dave, who was your big loser? Uh, my big loser is Ducati because... Uh, um they can't build a bike which is competitive with this new rear Michelin tyre. Um, and it's incomprehensible. They should be able to. Gigi Delinia is a very, very smart engineer. And he has uh, really a lot of smart engineers around him. And they've invested a lot in understanding tyres. They know that the tyres the, the, the are important. They have invested heavily in the fact that tyres are so important. Last year, they arguably, in fact, perhaps the last two years, they arguably had the best bike on the grid. Um, and this year, you know, there's just no way they have the best bike on the grid. Yeah, the Suzuki is clearly head and shoulders above them. Uh, the KTM's a very good bike. The, the Yamaha is, you know, not bad. Maybe they've dropped to the fourth, even fifth worst bike on the grid just because they can't get this thing to actually work with the tyres. Unfortunately for me, I'm going to go with Taka Nakagami. And it's it, it's very unfair on the basis of what we've already talked about for Taka and what he's been able to do over the course of the weekend because he was so fast all the way through. But it's hard not to look at the man that set all the practice pace, set pole position, got the whole shot, was leading the race, and then makes that mistake. So for me, unfortunately, much as we were bigging up Taka through the course of the early parts of the show, for me, he was still the biggest loser. So a bit unfortunate for Taka, but hopefully he's able to come back in the final three rounds of the year and uh, get himself back into that uh, challenge, challenging for podiums, challenging for getting himself to the front of the field. But uh, yeah, for me, unfortunately, Taka Nakagami was my big loser. But... Uh, you could make a case for him being both, you know, the biggest winner and the biggest loser. You know, he's like he's Schrodinger's candidate because it, he was fantastic um, and showed just what he was capable of all throughout the weekend. And then he falls off four, you know, five corners into the race. So, yeah, yeah, he's both the biggest winner and the biggest loser. You could have had him for both of them, uh, uh, Steve. Well, I'll tell you what, that sums up MotoGP 2020 in a nutshell, <laughs> Dave, to be honest. But uh, we've obviously got a week off between now and the Valencia Grand Prix. Dave, what's what's your plan? Falling off bicycles or anything else? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to try and, and not fall off bicycles because I'm um, uh, already, for, I think I'm good enough at falling off bicycles. I don't need any more practice. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm, uh, tomorrow, my knee protectors should, uh, should be arriving so I, d I can afford to fall off a bicycle again. Um, but yeah, uh, actually not doing very much. I'm going to have a weekend where I don't actually do very much at all. Not too shabby. Dave, how much cycling have you done this year? 3,700 kilometres, I think, or ah. maybe just under 3,700 kilometres. So you've done probably a busy week for Crutchlow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, for for Chris Richardson, I think that's two days. <laughs> and Neil, what's your plan for the for the week off? Uh, the plan was to sit in a nice cafe, then go to a nice restaurant, and follow that up by uh, drinking in a nice bar. But uh, sadly, all of those things are now undoable in Catalonia because we've got a fresh wave of restrictions and. Uh, well, a curfew from 10 p.m. at night. So uh, it sounds as though I might just be sitting in and, uh, you know, getting their Netflix on the go. Um, but yeah, something that doesn't involve watching motorbikes because uh, after three straight weeks, uh, yeah, I think you need to just switch it up a little bit. But 
yeah, after the weekend, I'm sure I'll be ready to go for another, uh, well, the, the final hurdle, as they say. Bit of Netflix and a bit of chill. I'll tell you what, I'm very excited that there's the uh, restrictions brought back into Catalonia, Neil, because I, I fly into Barcelona tomorrow to get down to Valencia for the CEV. So just in time to go back to Catalonia for all those restrictions, because I got back into Ireland just in time for the lockdown to start. It started, I think, 12 hours before I arrived. And now I get to go back to Barcelona and pretty much just uh, do the same thing again. So obviously, I'm just a big fan of the lockdown life as opposed to just trying to make a living by going to CV at the weekend. But, uh, you know, we've all got our crosses to bear. And uh, I tell you what, it's been a long cross for all of our listeners through the course of this show. We've definitely taken up a bit too much of everyone's time. But... Uh, if you've got any comments, if you've got any questions that you want answered between now and uh, the final triple header of the season, make sure to drop a tweet to at Moto Matters, at Neil Morrison 87, or to myself at Steve English GP, and we'll make sure to include that in the next podcast. We, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, and you can follow us on Facebook as well. So from Myself, Steve English, from David Emmett, from Neil Morrison. A big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. Nice one, Stevie. Bit of Netflix and a bit of chill.